want you guys to bow with me, and as our other campuses and venues join us, let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you for our time of worship where we can focus upon you and your truth and your goodness and even all that you are to us personally. And I pray, God, now that as we turn to the uh, very words of Jesus, that you might give us wisdom and insight, help us understand rightly uh, what is perceived by some of some of a difficult passage to help us understand this rightly. And God, as I always say, our our privilege back, our purpose back will be to apply this diligently to our lives. So Lord, we want to align with you as you walk with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. Well, my guess is that many of us, if not most of us, have had some times in our lives, maybe even more times than we would like to admit, where God is rather eclipsed from our view. He doesn't seem to be as front and center as in past times. I think if you and I were having a cup of coffee and I asked you, has there ever been a time like that, you would probably say that there has. As most of you know, I've been a follower of Jesus for almost 40 years now, and as I look back on the last 40 years with the Lord, there have been more times than I have even told you about where God seemed very distant in my life. In fact, as I'm working with a, a publisher on writing my second book, it will be a couple of years out, I'm actually thinking about writing a book on, on the distance of God at times in our lives because it's happened uh, a lot in my life. I can remember the first time that it happened in my spiritual walk with the Lord. I was about five years into my walk with God. And I've told you guys this before, but for the first five years of my walk with Lord, I was experiencing what C.S. Lewis calls the first fervor. I mean, I was just excited for the Lord. And I was actually extremely obnoxious back then. If you all think I'm obnoxious now, you would not have wanted to know me back then. Because if I met you back then, I'd say, hey, my name's Jamie, what's your name? Do you know Jesus? Because if not, you're going to hell. That was my conversation. <laughs> Seriously, with the vast majority of people. And, uh, and so, you know, I settled down a little bit. I still believe the same things, but I learned to be a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, tactful in how I approach people. And as I was going into seminary after about five years uh, after coming to the Lord, I, I experienced, and to this day, I don't know why. Sometimes we don't know why, but I experienced a real crash in my personal and spiritual life. I experienced some depression that was stronger than normal, some anxiety out of nowhere. I, I mean, I've looked at it from all different ways over the years, and I won't bore you with the details, but I entered in to a very dark period of my life where God seemed extremely distant from me. And the ironic thing was is that I was going into seminary at the time, learning to be a minister, and, and, and here I am feeling so distant from God. And this was not just a bad week. I mean, some of you go, yeah, I have weeks like that. Okay, try a month like that. Try a year like that where I'm still saved. I know the Lord, but when I pray, I don't get much answer. When I read the Bible, it doesn't seem as fresh. When I serve, it doesn't seem all that fulfilling. I mean, there was a season during my life, especially in my early seminary years, where I went through what St. John of the Cross would call the dark night of the soul, where there's darkness in my spirit and it just didn't seem like God was all that front and center, at least like how he used to be. 
And my guess is that some, if not many of us, could tell a similar story as mine. Surely with different circumstances and issues, it might be related to a loss of a loved one for you or maybe a relational breakdown or a job issue or a health issue, that's rather common. Uh, But there are times that we go through painful times in which God just seems very, very distant. And if you can relate to this at all, and again, many of us can, then you're ready for the next installment in this series that we've entitled, He Walks With Me, as we make our way through John chapter 16, because Jesus is going to help his disciples, and by extension, you and me, learn to navigate some of these times of divine distance. So I want us to read the first part of our text today. You don't need to stand today because we're going to read it in chunks. And I don't want you to get dizzy from standing and sitting. So just follow along as I read the first part of our text today, John 16, verses 16 through 19. It's going to be repetitious, but you'll see why in a minute here. Jesus is speaking and he begins like this. A little while and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Now, in order to fully understand what Jesus is getting at here, because we're going to finish the passage here in a few minutes, but we need to pause here. To fully understand what he's saying here, you have to put yourself in the original disciples' shoes. You see, part of the problem you and I have in reading a passage like this is that we know the end of the story. We know the rest of the story. So if you're tracking with this at all, you go, I know what this is about. In a little while, will you see me no longer? That's his death, because he's about ready to be taken from them, and he's going to be crucified in the grave. They're going to think he's good and gone. But then, on the third day, he's going to rise again, so in a little while, you will see me again. And we go, what's the problem? (laughs) The problem is the disciples haven't read the end of the story yet. They're right in the midst of this. And so there's some significant ambiguity for them in which they don't understand what Jesus is getting at. Put yourself in their shoes. These are ambiguous words. They're even somewhat cryptic words that Jesus gives them. And all they know is that their Savior is saying that I'm going to leave you and then you're going to see me again. And this puts fear and discouragement in their hearts and minds for the guy that they have left everything to follow. And to add even more texture to all of this, here's what you need to know. Even as you and I read this today, there's still some ambiguity as to what Jesus exactly or precisely means when he says, in a little while you'll see me no longer, and then in a little while you'll see me again. In other words, we think it's just his death and resurrection, but if you think about it, and the commentators point this out, the Bible experts, um, there's going to be other times beyond Jesus' death where the disciples don't see him anymore, right? Like the ascension. So in Acts chapter 1, when he ascended into heaven, there it is again. You don't see him anymore, but then when the Spirit is given, as we learned last week, the Spirit is given in order to 
revealed Jesus to us, so now we, quote, see him again. So that could be an option. Or how about this? He ascends into heaven and promises to come again, the second coming. So could it be referring to that? In other words, look up here on the screen, there's some ambiguity in Jesus' phrase, even for us 2,000 years later. Is he referring to his death and then the resurrection? Is he referring to his ascension and then the giving of the Spirit? Is he referring to his ascension and then the second coming? It's not as clear as some make it out to be. There's ambiguity written into this. Here's the one thing we know for sure, and that is that there will be times... When followers of Jesus, and this is important, do not see him, whether for the disciples it was his original death, whether for you and I it's the ascension in which he now reigns in heaven, there will be times that for whatever reason we don't see him, but then he says, don't worry, in a little while you will again see me. And whether this refers to his death or his ascension, to his resurrection, the spirit of the second coming, this is all up for debate. Now, we're going to go back or get back to these various options in a bit and make sense of them for our lives today. I promise you, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes here and I'm going to share with you what I think out of these three options uh, John is getting at. But before we do this, I want us to read further what Jesus goes on to say because he's now going to address with much more clarity, now don't miss this, what it's like to experience this divine distance, this dark night of the soul, and how he walks with us through it, even leading us to the point of joy. Jesus is about to describe that for his disciples and for us. So let's read on in verse 20 to 22. Jesus turns up the heat now and look at what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more, for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. Now, this is fascinating words here, obviously originally said to the disciples, but I'm going to point out that I think these words contain something for you and I today. In other words, it's not just for the disciples, this also describes some of our experience as Jesus walks with us. And one of the most important things you guys need to see in this passage here is that there's a juxtaposition going on here, kind of two sides of the same coin, that coin being your walk with the Lord. So Jesus is telling the disciples and you and I that your life is like a coin and there's one side that's going to be described here, but then when you flip it over, there's another side to it as well. What are those two sides? Well, the first side is, is that there's going to be times where you weep and lament, and then three times over, he says, sorrowful, sorrow, sorrow. So there it is, weep, lament, thrice, sorrowful. But then he says, as you flip the coin over, there's gonna be three times joy. Joy, rejoice, and joy. Give me a head nod that you all see that. That's really important. Jesus is, you didn't nod your heads. Give me a head nod that all of you see this. 
You're going to get to Mimi's in short order. Just stay with me right now. This is an important thing in the text here that Jesus makes a point of three times over saying sorrow, three times over saying rejoice, because that's going to be part and parcel of our experience with him as he walks with us. So let's kind of go deeper into this. When Jesus says that there will be times that the disciples and us weep, that's a fascinating word. It's the Greek word klyao, and it literally means to cry loudly, to wail. So it's not like a light weeping. It's not like when you hear a worship song, a little tear comes down your face and you go, that's a meaningful song. That's not what this is talking about. This is like all out weeping, crying, wailing. It's the same word used to describe Peter in Luke 22, verse 62, when after he denied Jesus for the third time, remember that story, and the rooster crowed? It says he went outside and he wept. He cried loudly. He was shattered spiritually. Jesus is saying there's going to be times where your spiritual life very well might be like that. And then he says to the disciples and us, and you're going to lament. <laughs> that word literally means to sing a dirge. It's the, it's the word that was used to the women who were following Jesus up Golgotha to where he would place his cross in Luke 23, verse 27. It's like a death march song. Jesus says there's going to be times that you lament in your life. And then that three times over word sorrow kind of brings it all together. The word simply means distress, emotional pain, grief. Same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where it says that when you lose somebody you love, you grieve, but not like the rest of men who have no hope. So add it all up here. I'm not trying to be morose. This is Jesus. There will be times in life where we experience the dark night in our walk with the Lord. The original disciples did and we will as well, complete with divine distance. Peter denying Jesus, the women along the road to the crucifixion, times of great loss, weeping, lamenting, three times over, sorrow. And we don't always know why this happens, it just does, and Jesus walks with us in it. But then notice that as Jesus continues to walk with us, he says, and it's the reason I put all of this on one screen here, that the coin is eventually gonna flip. This is really important, gang. And there's weeping in the night, but joy is going to come in the morning. I've taught you what this word is before joy. It is not happiness. It is not what our world talks about today, where you get a new car and you feel good. You have a nice retirement savings, you feel good. You have a good golf game, you feel good. You eat a nice meal, you feel good. There is a Greek word for that. It's a Greek word, hedone, where we get the English word hedonism from. It's not a bad thing. It just means pleasure and it's fleeting and it comes and goes. That's not joy. This is the Greek word kara, and I've given you this definition before. This is really good. It's a longing and desire built upon hope. And Jesus gives us this beautiful word picture here of a woman giving birth to a child to describe this joy. And you gotta love this because as we all know, especially you ladies, when you're giving birth to a child, there is great, great pain. You wonder what you've gotten into. How are you gonna get through this and endure it? And yet the second that baby is born, that pain is now in the background and you look down at that beautiful baby and you go, Joy is filling your heart. Now, now think about what that feeling is. 
And men try to dial into this too. It's not happiness. It's not like getting an ice cream cone. It's not like a new car. No, it's a deeper than that. It's a joy of all that that baby is going to bring to your life and all that that baby will bring to this world. It's a longing. It's a desire built upon hope. That's the joy that Jesus is talking about here. And he says that as God walks with you and that as you walk with him, your sorrow is eventually going to turn to joy. So simply see, you have two sides of the same coin as Jesus walks with us. Times of difficulty and great sorrow, you cannot escape it, but then matched by times of unmistakable joy. And it's at this point that you're now ready to put all of this together and let's say it in a sentence, what Jesus is telling us in this entire passage, and it's this, that life in a fallen world can be a killjoy, but Jesus likes to restore joy. If you ask me if I'm doing a play on words, yes. Life in a fallen world can be a killjoy. It can rob you of your joy. We all know this. But Jesus is in the habit of restoring joy. You know, you know and, and you gotta laugh at this. In some sort of sick way, as I was preparing the message this week, I started to smile in my home office thinking, I can't wait to preach this stuff to Scottsdale people. I can't wait to preach this stuff in this, you know, upper crust, more wealthy than much of the nation, you know, everybody coming here because this is such a wonderful valley kind of people. Because when you think about the town that we live in, whether it's Scottsdale or Phoenix or the whole valley here, people come here, especially this time of year, from like all over the nation, even Canada, other parts of the world, and they come here for sun and baseball and biking, golf, resorts, hiking, great biblical sermons, things like that. People come from all over the nation, you know, to, to experience what, you know, our country would call the good life, right? And you all know this, for those of us who live here, either full-time or part-time, I mean, our friends back in the Midwest or wherever they're from are, you know, texting us saying it's snowing here, and we're like, well, it's not snowing here, you know, and we put a good life bumper sticker on our car, and, you know, somebody says, how you doing? I'm living the dream, you know, you hear things like that all the time. And, and the reason I took some sort of sick joy in what we're talking about here today is that here's what those of us who live in the valley and walk with God know. You ready for this? <laughs> you cannot escape the difficulties of life even here in the valley of the sun. Amen? You cannot. Why? Because the fall of humankind is everywhere. And the fall of humankind is in us. And so no matter where you go in this world, no matter how beautiful it might be, the fall and the difficulties of this world will follow you. I mean, even here in the valley, bodies get sick. Mayo and, and honor, healthcare and dignity, they're all filled with people whose bodies are not working right. Kids do not cooperate, even here in the valley. Finances struggle, businesses rise and fall, marriages go south. The morality of culture even wanes here in the valley. And even emotions go haywire, which is why we have just as many therapists here in the valley as we do in other metropolitan areas because we're no different here. You name it, it can happen in a fallen world. And again, the reason that this is important for you and I to own today is because this is the source many times of our disillusionment and discouragement. 
That when tough times hit, when the fall rears its ugly head, either in our souls like it did for me back in the 80s or through our circumstances outwardly like many of you, God can seem distant. He can even be distant. Jesus told us this. In a little while, you will no longer behold me. You will weep, lament, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Why? Because life in a fallen world can be a killjoy. But the good news And literally, it is the good news, is that God has promised to walk with us. I don't know if you guys caught it or not, but we did not call this series what I hear so many Christians say often, and that is, I walk with him, right? Like I hear Christians say, my walk with the Lord, and I walk with the Lord. That's fine to say, because there is an aspect where you need to walk with the Lord. But that's not what Jesus is interested in in this passage here, in this whole chapter, He's interested in letting you know he walks with you. And as he walks with you, what you guys need to see here is that he's really good at turning our sorrow to joy. He knows that life can deal us a bad, bad deck at times, or a bad hand at times. But he also knows that as he walks with us, he's in the joy business. It's verse 22. He says, therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy from you. That sounds pretty solid to me, if you ask me, that there's something in Jesus that brings a joy. I know I've thrown a lot at you biblically, and I'm not done. We're going to wrap up here in in a few minutes by uh, going back to those three options here. But before we get to that, I need to point out something else going on right here in verse 22 that, you know, you really don't see it until you study this passage more in depth. So I didn't see this until the commentators pointed it out, but it's really rich once you see it. If you remember verses 16 through 19, like repeated over and over again, that phrase, you guys remember this, in a little while, you will no longer behold me. Then in a little while, you will see me. And then, and then, you know, Jesus says that and the disciples say, why do you say in a little while, you know, we will no longer see you, but then in a little while, you know, you will see me. And then Jesus says, hey, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking in a little while, you know, you're like, gosh, I get it. Okay. I mean, you know, we got an issue here on our hands and it repeats it over and over again. And the phrase, in case you missed it, is in a little while, you will no longer behold me, but then... And do you remember what it is? You will see me. That's what Jesus says. That's what the disciples repeat. That's what Jesus reflects back. Okay, we get it. What's fascinating is that in verse 22 here, as Jesus finally declares what the experience will be, he changes it. Did you pick up on that? Because he says, therefore, you two will now have sorrow where we won't see him anymore. But then instead of saying, then you will see me, he doesn't say that. What does he say? I will see you. Now, that's interesting. What's the relevance of that? Here's what I think Jesus is saying, and this is so powerful, is that when you're in that dark night of the soul, when you're in those difficult moments, even before you see him again, he sees you. He's always seen you. He has you in his grip. It just seems like he doesn't. But even in the midst of sorrow, the lamenting, the wailing, he sees you. He's going to see you again and again and again. And eventually, out of that is going to be some joy and you're going to see him again. Jesus truly wants to take us from the killjoy of this fallen world to the joy 
of what it means to experience him walking with us and us walking with him. Now, once we get this, the question we need to ask in the few minutes we have left is how does all of this work? I mean, it's one thing to say, as some of you would be tempted to say in walking out of here today and, and at Cactus and, and, and Chapel and Venue in Northridge to say, you know, well, pastor said that, you know, during difficult times, I just got to hang in there and eventually give me joy. That's true. But the question is, how does God do that precisely? How does he restore our joy? And to answer this in our time remaining today, I want us to notice two further things that Jesus tells us here in John 16, two things that are easy to miss if you do a drive-by of this passage, but they're worth noting if you park for a few minutes more in front of it. So here's the first thing Jesus tells us about how he restores our joy, and that is that Jesus doesn't replace our sorrow with joy. No, he turns our sorrow into joy. And if ever there was an important biblical distinction, this one is it. Jesus doesn't replace our sorrow with joy. He turns our sorrow into joy. Look at how this is made clear in verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the whole world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. We've seen all that. But then he says, but your sorrow will be, say this word with me, turned to joy. You know, it's fascinating in, in the Greek that John was writing and there actually is a word for replace. He could have quoted Jesus as saying that he will replace your sorrow with joy, but he didn't. He chose this word turned, most likely because that's the word Jesus used. It's the Greek word ginomai, and it literally means to become, to come into a new state of being. It denotes a process of transformation versus a stark just replace, uh, take away and replace. It denotes morphing into something else. Here's the common analogy people use, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Where in one sense, the butterfly now replaces the caterpillar, but basically the caterpillar turned into a butterfly, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. And the reason that this distinction is important is because Jesus is telling us that he doesn't immediately take away all of our sorrow in some magical moment, no. He uses our sorrow, even at times over a lengthy period of time, to eventually turn it into joy. And so I like how Leon Morris, arguably one of the top experts on the Gospel of John in our modern age, says it. This is good. He says in describing this exact passage, he says, a new state of affairs will have emerged. The thought is not, of course, that believers will never know sorrow. It is rather that after they have come to understand the significance of the cross, they will be possessed by a deep-seated joy, a joy independent of the world. The world did not give it, and the world cannot take it away. And gang, what is most powerful about this is that because Jesus doesn't just take away our sorrow and replace it with joy, but actually turns our sorrow into joy, what we find is that he actually uses our particular sorrow for the components of our joy. That just like a butterfly is made from the components of that caterpillar, but you just don't see the caterpillar anymore, could it be that God takes away our pain and, or takes our pain and sorrow and uses it, even in the midst of our difficulty, over time to be the seedbed for our joy. You gotta wrestle with that. 
Because that's exactly what I think the experience of getting joy from God is all about. You know, I told you earlier when we started our time here together about my late 80s, dark, dark night of the soul and how difficult that was for me. And again, I'm not going to go into details on all the ins and out of it. My wife is here in this service and she knows it fully because we went through it together. But it was fascinating as I went through those years of seminary and, and the darkness and the difficulty in my walk with God. Again, lots of unanswered prayer and, you know, the Bible seemed dry much of the time and all this stuff. Um, I came out of that somewhere in the early 90s. I mean, it really did take a few years as God was honing my soul and my character. And I was in my first pastorate. And hindsight's always 2020. And as I look back now on what God did in me in the 90s in my first pastorate, here's what you need to know. All of it would not have happened had it not been for the dark night of the soul. And you're saying like, what? Well, one of the things that I was able to contribute to my first church in the 90s was a, a real deep faith and trust in the Lord. I mean, I was able to work with people in recovery and, and people that have hit really rock bottom. It was Detroit in the 90s and, and, and say to them, I know, I know, I get what you're going through, but, but God is good and, and hang in there with him and trust him in there because there was a depth of, of faith and trust that I had in the Lord that, that only came out of that dark night because I'd learned to trust him even in the darkness. And, and then I look back on those times and my ability to empathize with those going through difficult times. I never had that in the 80s. As I mentioned, I was an, an obnoxious young Christian in the 80s. If you came to me with a problem, I'd say, hey, I got the answer, trust Jesus. I mean, that's the answer, which a lot of Christians say. The problem is we're not really empathizing with those around us. We're not looking them in the eye and say, I get it. I, I, I get the pain. I get the difficulty. Let's just pause right there. And yet in the 90s, I was able to do that, but only because of the dark night. I had appreciation for the process of sanctification. I had appreciation for the community of faith and what it means to have a few people around you who are gonna stay with you through thick and thin like a wife newly married to this nutcase. I mean, there was just a lot of things that I appreciated in the 90s. Now watch this. Things that gave me joy. Joy in my deep faith in the Lord, joy in my love of other people, joy in my appreciation for the process. All these things gave me joy, but let's not mistake it. All of them were born of the dark night. And God took that dark night and he turned it into joy. He didn't replace it overnight. You know, in a very real sense here and at our other campuses and venues, there's only two types of people here today. Go back to that coin. You're either on one side of the coin or the other. I've had a lot of people come up to me after the services, or the last two of them, and, and people have said, man, you just nailed it right where I'm at today because the law of averages said some of you right now are in that dark night. Some of you are where the disciples were at the front end of this in a little while, and you will see me no longer. You're right there right now. Here's what you need to know. As God walks with you, no, as Jesus walks with you, he is good for turning your sorrow into joy. As the psalmist said so well, though there is weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. It might not come tomorrow. It might take some time. But as you walk with him, most importantly, as he walks with you, he will bring the sun again to your life. He will bring the joy again to you. Hang in there with him. He is good 
for what he promises. And as you're chewing on that, one final thing here today, we're just about out of time, one final thing that I believe Jesus is truly getting at here, and this is the second thing we need to take away with how we turn uh, sorrow into joy, and that is that we must attach our joy to the right things. We need to attach our joy to the right things. What do I mean by this? I told you earlier that I promised we'd get back to those three options. So quick review. In a little while, you will see me no longer, but then in a little while, you will see me. What does Jesus mean by that? We noted three options. Remember these? And that is that it could refer to his death and then his resurrection, because they would not see him in his death, but then his resurrection. It could refer to his ascension in Acts 1, and then the Spirit given in Acts 2, because the Spirit now helps us see Jesus. It could be referring to his ascension, and then eventually his second coming. Commentators note all the three of these things. Now, let's just cut to the quick. I think the context of John 16 going into John 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 tells us that option one is really the heart of it, right? I mean, if you were the disciples back then, you heard these words from Jesus and then experienced what they would over the next week, week and a half, you'd go, ah, he was referring to his death and resurrection. And most commentators fall on that. So if that was your guess, good guess. But in hindsight, as we look at this passage now 2,000 years later, other commentators point out that these two are also true in addition to this for us. In other words, the same process works here, here, and here. So the disciples experienced it here, and you and I do too now as we bank on his resurrection. But he did ascend to heaven, and now we see him through the Spirit. He did ascend to heaven, and we're still waiting for his second coming. So what I've been trying to say all along is that this process is for all of us. In a little while, you will see me no longer. In a little while, you will then see me again. It works the same way today. And here's the point. We need to attach our joy, not to the things of this world, but to a resurrected, spirit-giving, coming again, Savior. Amen? And some of you right now are going, what else would I attach it to? I'm so glad you asked, because let's spend just a couple of minutes on that. See, here's what many Christians don't realize today, because we live oblivious lives. God is so concerned that you attach your joy to the right things, because every moment of every day, you are tempted to attach your joy to the things of this world, and you don't even know it. You're bombarded with advertisements and people around you and culture that scream to you that you need to live the good life and that you need to enjoy the good life. You need to get that new car. You need to find that new house. You got to save well for your retirement. Get better at your golf game. Make sure your kids turn out really well. I mean, think of all the things that we're told that we need to do to live a satisfying life. And here's the problem, gang, is that I rub shoulders with lots of lost people. And they get to the end of that life and they are so imbued in the things of the world that they actually have the gall to say, even though I didn't have God in my life, it all felt just fine. And you know what? There's only one answer to that. And that is that they don't even know what joy is. They have assumed that happiness, the happiness of this world, that you can find. All of you have proven that. You can find happiness, and it can give you the giddies. It can make you feel good for a little while. The problem is, that's not joy. That joy can only be found in God, and joy eats happiness for breakfast. Amen? 
Once you experience the joy of the Lord that he has for you, you're never going to want the happiness again. You might get it. And again, it makes you feel good for a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're going to go, I'm done with that. That's what a mature Christian does. And now my life is going to be being a joy seeker. And there's only three ways you're going to get that. You're going to get it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is your victory. You're going to get it from the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you and walks with you each moment of each day. And you're going to get it in longing to see him again. That's why I said that really you need to attach your joy not to the things of this world, but to a resurrected, spirit-giving, coming-again Savior. Because Jesus won't let you down. In a little while, his joy will come. Stay focused on the right things. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these words of Jesus that we've really barely scratched the surface of, but speak pointedly to our lives even today. And I pray, God, that as we chew on these things for our lives, because some of us are in the crucible right now, I pray that these words would not just act as great challenge, but immense encouragement to us. And that, Lord, we would never settle for the hedone of this world, but only for the, the joy that you reserve for us in Christ. Lord, that's our hope. So God, in a little while, would you please restore the joy, Lord, of those here today who are just hanging on for dear life. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we never, ever, ever take for granted the joy that you've given us in Jesus. And I pray these things in Christ's name. We all say together, amen.